0: Of all your favorite saints, Saint Cecilia for sore throats, Saint Paul for bad backs and swollen feet, brother. Saint Joe for chapped hands, the Virgin, all oh, off the oh, pain This is coming. He's down. down.
1: Oh, oh, is oh. here?
0: 100 years. Enough!
1: Name of the deceased in relation? and relation, Hendrik Luther.
0: grandfather. And now our father on every step. When you reach the top of the stairs, Hendrik will be released from purgatory and enter the gates of heaven. Name of the deceased and relation,
1: go
0: step the the stairs.
1: I other one is the first time. The other one is the
0: first time. The other one is the first time. The
1: You know, is a man justified by faith or by what he does? Does God accept us because we do the right things, or is our acceptance based on what we believe? You know, this year, as we've shared, is the 500th year, marking the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, for some of you, that may mean a lot. For others, it may not mean a lot, but it should mean a lot, because that's why we're here. We're here on the one hand because Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, but also we are a part of a Protestant church and a part of a tradition in which we're understanding that our acceptance is by faith in what Jesus Christ has done and what Jesus Christ has done alone. And see, Martin Luther, as we saw in this short video clip, wrestled with the question, what makes us acceptable to God? Are we accepted by God because we've done the right things? because we have everything in order, because we look at the right relics, because we climb up a set of stairs and pray the right prayer on each stair, or we accepted by God because of Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. And our works, our actions, are really evidence of a life that loves God. Well, see, that's the question that Martin Luther was wrestling with. What makes us acceptable? And he came to passages where Paul said, You know, we're accepted through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. Now, one of the reasons that's challenging for us today, because in verse 24, if you want to take out your Bible or turn it on, and I encourage you each week, you know, bring your Bible with you. Because in verse 24, James seems to say something that is diametrically opposed to what Paul says, that we're saved through faith alone in what Christ has done. See, in verse 24, James says something A little startling, maybe startling even to Martin Luther, who said that the epistle of James is a right, strawy epistle, meaning he did not like the book of James because of verse 24, which says this. You see, a person is justified by words and not by faith alone. Now, if you go to books like Romans, Paul will say, no, a man is justified, and we'll talk about what that word means, by faith in Christ alone and not by what He does. And so which one is it? Is it by faith or is it by what we do? Well, what we have to realize as we jump into this passage and if we had more time, we'd look more into depth, into what this word means. But James and Paul, I want you to know at the outset, they are saying the same thing. See, James and Paul knew each other. They knew each other very well. In fact, if you go to books like Acts chapter 15... James and Paul got together at the first council of the church in the city of Jerusalem, and the question that they were asking and the question they were wrestling with is this, what makes us acceptable to God? Because there was an issue that some Jewish Christians thought they were more acceptable to God than Gentile Christians. And so James and John and all the apostles got together and said, okay, guys, let's get it straight. Let's lay it down. What makes us acceptable to God? What allows God to love, accept us, and to know Him? And together, all the apostles agreed, it's through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we are justified. And what that means in Paul's terms is that we are made right with God. To justify doesn't mean to make something true. To justify, in some ways, can mean to prove that something is true. If you said the Broncos are the best franchise in the NFL... I would say well, justify your statement. Not make it true, but prove to me. Give me evidence that it's true. And see, that's how James is using this word justified in verse 24. We are justified by works. He's not saying that our works make us acceptable. He's not saying that God looks at what we do and he says, okay, now I'm going to love you because you're living your life right. No, he's saying that our works are evidence of a heart that has been transformed by God. What we do is evidence, and we all know this, of what we believe. Your life is a better story of what you believe than what you claim to believe. Do you realize that? We cannot separate what we believe from what we do. We always respond to things based out of what we believe. And James is simply saying if we really believe that God is who He says He is, if we really believe that God has sent His Son, that He loves us, He's given us grace, He's given us eternal life, He's given us the Holy Spirit, He's given us the body of Christ, then what kind of life is evidence that we have encountered the living God? What kind of life is evidence that we have experienced the love, the grace, the hope, and the mercy of God? What James is going to say is there is certain evidence to a life that has been changed by God. And the question we need to wrestle with as we come to this text is, does my life reflect belief in who Jesus Christ is, what he's done, and what God has accomplished through him? Does my life, is it a reflection of what I believe? You see, that's what he's going to get into in this passage. You know, Martin Luther had a, a protege named Philip Melanchthon. And you'll see this on your handout. And this is how Melanchthon summarized the the connection between faith and what we do. He said it this way. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone, meaning that our faith will always be evidenced by what we do. It will be evidence of a transformed life. And in fact, if you look down in chapter 2, verse 5, that's what James is saying. He says that we are rich in faith, and then he uses an important word you'll see there. We inherit the kingdom of God that he has promised to us. You know, there's a big difference between an inheritance and a salary. I think we all recognize that. There's a big difference between an inheritance and a salary. A salary is based on what you do. It's not promised to you unless the job is fulfilled, unless you're actually doing what they've asked you to do. Now, an inheritance isn't based on what you do. An inheritance is based on who you are. An inheritance is based on a relationship. A salary is based on a contract. If you fulfill these obligations, these are the benefits. See, what is James saying in verse 5? Salvation is by faith. You see, salvation is more about your relationship to the Father than it is about what you do. Because an inheritance comes to you because you're the daughter, you're the son of whoever. And when they pass on that money, that inheritance comes to you. Well, James is saying the same thing. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And because of that, the inheritance of salvation, the inheritance of of the kingdom of God, comes to us. That in the New Testament, James and Paul agree we are saved, not by what we do, but rather salvation comes by what we believe. That we trust that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. He's done what He has said He has done. He's risen on the third day, and because of that, He is my Savior, He is my salvation, and my life is now complete in Him. But here's the question. What does a life look like that has encountered the radical, self-sacrificing love of God? What does a life look like that has encountered the radical, self-sacrificing love of God? See, that's the question that James wrestles with. And before we answer it, because James is going to give us four examples, two insufficient examples of saving faith, and then, two examples that are sufficient to evidence a faith that is alive with God. Two examples of insufficient faith, meaning they're not bad things, but they're not evidence of a saved life. And then, second, he's going to talk about two examples of saving faith. But before we look at that, here's the question that I wrestled with this, this week. You know, why did James have to write this in the first place? You know, why did he have to say that? when you come into a relationship with God, your life should change. I mean, doesn't that seem self-evident? That if you encounter the love of God, if you experience God's presence and He's come in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, as the Scripture says, we are born again, we are implanted with the living Word of God, why does James even need to tell us that our life has to change? And is that relevant for us today? You see, what had happened in the church... What had happened, even I think can happen today, is it's easy to accept an incomplete incomplete concept of the gospel. It's easy to accept an incomplete or an inadequate, a self-centered view of the gospel. Now, what's the gospel? The gospel is simply the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of who God is and what God has done for us, that through faith in what Christ has done, we have eternal life, we have salvation. But see, it's possible to not see, have a gospel, to believe in a God that the end of that salvation is God's glory, but rather it's, I think, very easy today to take the values of our culture, baptize them with Jesus, and have a very consumer-driven, self-centered faith, rather than a God-sized, God-centered faith. Are you with me? It's easy today to take life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness— to take concepts of individualism, wrap that up into the church and have a very consumer, meaning a self-centered faith, rather than a faith that is big, that's centered not on who I am and what what I want in life, but rather a faith that's captivated by who God is and what God wants for us. See, what is the purpose of salvation? Why did Jesus Christ, why did He come? Well, I think one of the ideas that often comes to us is that, you know, Jesus had to come to get me to heaven, that the goal of the gospel is a destination, that eternal life is a future life. And yet what we find in the New Testament, eternal life, heaven is not a destination. Eternal life is not a quality of life in the future. Rather, eternal life is knowing God today. And see, heaven is not so much something we get to. Heaven is something God wants to put in us so that heaven can be something that God wants to work through us. You know, Jesus prayed, as on earth as it is in heaven, that when we live for God, what he wants is not just heaven to be a future desire, but the reality of heaven, of life with God, to work in us, and then as a result of that, to work through us. That each person we encounter would encounter the power and the presence of God living and dwelling through us. That we would saturate evergreen with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how's that going to happen? It happens through Christ who dwells in you. And as Paul says, Christ is the hope of glory. See, what God desires for us is not just simply a destination, not a life, a good life that's coming someday that we have to endure the hard times today. No. What God desires for us is His life to live in us and for His life to work through us. See, that's salvation. Salvation is to be with God. To be with God today, allowing Him to work through us, and then, in the future, to be with Him in eternity. Because if you do not want to be with Him today, you are not going to love heaven in eternity. And if serving God today and allowing God to work through you isn't a passion and a desire to see others encounter the glory and the love of God through Jesus Christ, heaven is not going to be heaven. Heaven is going to be, that's right, it's going to be hell. And so what is James describing? He's talking about the evidence of a life that has truly been transformed by the love and the power of God, that we have a message, church, that is called good news. And it is as great as the love of God and it is as transformative as the grace of God. But what is the mark of a life that has been transformed by God? Hey, real quickly, in Ephesians 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul describes both the power and the purpose of salvation. He describes on the one hand what we have been saved from, but the more important question is, what have we been saved for? And so in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it this way He says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And see, this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works, though that no one may boast. And then listen for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand to do, that we should walk in them. On the one hand, what have we been saved from? We all know we've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's called forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, we are forgiven, so we've been saved from the penalty of sin. But on the other hand, you're also right now being saved from the very power of sin. And that's a theological term called sanctification. It means to be transformed from the power of sin to the power of God. And so right now, you're being saved. And one day, by God's grace, we will all be saved, meaning we'll be in the presence of God, and the very presence of sin will be away from us. What is the power of the gospel? I have been saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. Salvation is not a destination. It's a life. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's called forgiveness. I'm being saved right now. It's why hopefully you're gathering. And we worship together. It's why we get in community. It's why we get into the scripture. It's why we pray. It's why we encourage each other. It's why sometimes, forgive us, we need to rebuke each other and correct each other and train each other in righteousness because the best life of all is a life that's overcoming the power of sin and experiencing the presence and the power of God. But then finally, one day, we will be set free from the very presence of sin. See, that is the power of the gospel. It's what we've been saved from. But here's the question. What have you been saved for? Have you been saved for your best life now? Popular book. Have you been saved to be comfortable? Have you been saved to be a consumer, to allow church not to be my identity, but allow me to be a renter? I'm going to rent church. I'm not going to own it. I'm going to rent the Christian life. And you guys, some of you guys have renters. I know you do. And there's a big difference between a renter and an owner. You know, A a renter doesn't take necessarily responsibility for where they live. They don't care for what they have. Rather, an owner is somebody that invests. An owner is somebody that cares. An owner is somebody that takes ownership, and therefore they sacrifice and they serve. And in the end, they want the outcome to be positive. Are we owners of our faith? Are we owners of being the church, or are we simply renters? See, what have we been saved for? He says in verse 10 10 of Ephesians uh, chapter 2, he says, we've been saved, church, for good works. Meaning you were saved, you ready? Here's the good news, to be a servant. You were saved to be a slave. Not a slave to sin, as Paul says, but you are now a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to life, not to, to just the desires of the heart. Rather, Paul's saying we've been saved for good works. You know that word in the Greek is the word poema, from which we get our English word poetry. Church, we are to be God's poetry. That our life is supposed to be a reflection of who God is and to live in such a way that others are drawn to the goodness, to the grace and ultimately to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we see ourselves as consumers, as renters, or do we see ourselves as owners? You know, this building is not the church. I hate to say it. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And what is a church? A church is a family of servant missionaries. We're a family God is our Father, therefore that means we are brothers and sisters, and we didn't get to choose that. Just like you didn't choose your own brothers and sisters. No, God brings us together, and you know what He wants you to do is to love the people around you. Because, see, that's where you're going to experience His grace. That's where you're going to be trained in righteousness and change your life. No, we are the family of God, but we are a family of servant missionaries because Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but He came to serve And lay down his life for us. And if I have experienced the servant king laying down his life for us, the evidence of that is service towards others. And see, that's what James is now going to get into that what we have been saved from is sin, but what you've been saved for is a life of service to those that do not know Christ and to those that know Christ but need to know him better. And so what is the evidence of a life that's been changed? Well, let's jump back, if you will, into James chapter 2. And he's going to show us quickly just two insufficient evidences of saving faith and then two signs that my faith is alive with God, that I know Him, I love Him, and God is at work in my life. So first of all, what is the insufficient sign of faith? You ready for this? It's a little damning. In verse 19 he says... You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Now, when he says you believe that God is one, that was an important phrase if you were part of the Jewish faith. Because every morning you'd get up and you would pray from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the heart of your faith. You were a monotheist, living in a world of polytheists, of people that believed in many gods. Now you had transferred your faith into the one true God, and every morning you would get up and you would declare your devotion, your love, your admiration to the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you know what you'd say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart heart soul, mind, and strength, meaning it's not enough just simply to declare, I believe in the one true God. There has to be, as Deuteronomy says, as Jesus said, an evidence of that belief in a life of love towards God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, meaning everything I have is God's. Lord, would you use it and use me as a servant of Jesus Christ. See, he's saying it's possible to believe the right things and yet to be no better than a demon. Demons have great theology. You realize that? They've got tremendous theology. They've lived in the presence of God at one point as angels. They've worshipped at His feet. They know the King of kings. They know God's power. They know God's wisdom. They know God's might. They believe that God is one. Sound theology is good. I love theology. I went and studied four years of that. But it's not enough. A mere profession of faith isn't a sign of living faith. And yet the second thing he says is, is somewhat startling. He says, even the demons believe, and what do they do? They respond out of what they believe. They shudder. Meaning a demon believes that God is great, that God is powerful, they believe that God's plans will be carried out, and their life is a reflection of what they believe. They shudder. Now, the motivation of their life is not love for God. The motivation of their life is self-centered fear for themselves. A demon responds to the greatness of God and is overwhelmed by His glory and His goodness, But everything in his response is out of a self-centered desire to preserve himself. He shudders in fear. He responds to what he believes. In Christian's church, it's possible to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus, to live a good religious moral life, but you're doing nothing more than shuddering. Meaning your faith isn't God-centered, it's self-centered. It's not out of a desire to love and know God. It's out of a desire for what I can get from God. You with me? It's possible to believe the right things, James is saying. It's possible to have a moral life, to respond with religious duty. And yet, it's not out of a love for God. It's out of what I could get from God. See, demons use God. Demons use the stuff of God. They use creation. They use life. But they do not love God. What is the evidence of saving faith? It's not just believing the right thing. It's not even just doing the right thing. So what is it? It gives us two ideas. Now, first of all, if you go back, and I think it's in verse 8, James will give us a window into what he's reflecting on. The same thing the Old Testament says, the same thing the New Testament says, we should love our neighbor as ourself. Now, the first half of that is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning, how do I know that I love God? The only way you know it has to be evident in your love for others. Because I can easily tell all of you, I love you. But you're going to sniff out my love through my actions. Are you with me? Because sometimes people say they love you, but their love stinks. They say it's love, but there's no action of love. There's no service. There's no self-sacrifice, no mercy, no compassion. Hey, listen, I love you, but don't ask me to do anything. And James is simply saying if we claim to love God but there's nothing in our life that reflects the love of God that faith stinks. Meaning it's necrotic. Another way of saying it is it's dead. You may believe the right things. You may do the right things but if it's not done out of a heart that loves God he says it's dead. So what is the evidence of a transformative faith? First of all The evidence is that we love others, that we move out in life towards others. He says this in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Now, what are the works of, what are the signs of of saving faith? Notice what he describes. Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to you, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Meaning, what good is it that we know the community in which we live is happily lost, but we do nothing about it? What good is it that we live in a community of people that may not be materially poor, but they are living a life of spiritual poverty? You know, in Revelation chapter 3, the way Jesus describes sin is in terms of poverty. Listen to his words in Revelation 3, verse 17. He says, Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But realizing that you are wretched, listen to how he describes this wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy. From me, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness. You know, we bring up the topic of sin in this community. And what is the response? How do people respond to sin? You know, the economically poor have no problem with the word sin because they see it every day. But the materially rich, they mock at the concept of sin. Because sin sin means, I need something. Sin is an honest reflection saying, I need God. And in the eyes of God in this community, this is a community that is pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How can we look into the, the community in which we live and not sacrifice in ways that cause the gospel to go out? that caused the love of God to go out, that we're so focused on maybe our life or our day or what's happening that we don't see there are people around us that may not be materially poor, but as Jesus describes them, they are spiritually poor. They're blind. What is it that's going to wake them up? Who's going to wake them up? That's why we're here. Hopefully that's why you're here today. Hopefully you're here because you know that God has called you not to be simply a consumer of the Christian faith, but a servant of Jesus Christ to communicate the love and the power of God to others. Which means, as we're going to see, is on the one hand, saving faith is evidenced by a life that loves others, that sees the needs of others, and listen, is willing to sacrifice for those needs, to serve in the church, to serve in this community, to sacrifice financially, and not just financially, but in our time, in our stress, You know, I don't want to serve if it costs me anything. Now, certainly, Jesus, it cost him his life. And what is he calling us to do but to reflect his sacrifice through us? Saving faith is evidenced by a love for others that serves and sacrifices and puts the needs of people who disagree with us morally, ethnically, politically, ahead of our own. Because that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. But second, the evidence is love for people, but... Also, a love for God. And he evidences that by pointing us to Abraham. And he says, if you want to see what a transformed life looks like, look at one incident, one one story, which is a story for many of us that may be a difficult story. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. He says in verse uh, 20 through 24 Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not our father, uh, was not Abraham our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith, meaning what he was believed, what he believed, was active with his works, and his faith was completed, meaning it was evident by what he did, and the scripture f- was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted, counted, counted to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, what is that story about? The story of Abraham and Isaac is about one thing. It's about love. Now, it doesn't look like love to take your son up on a mountain and sacrifice him. It doesn't seem that way. It certainly didn't seem that way to the apostles when Jesus died on the cross. But let me ask you the question. If you had wanted a son your entire life, you wanted an heir, waited 25 years for this child to be born, what do you think your heart is most connected to in life? If you can't have a child, and if you're already past the age of having a child, meaning, as the text says nicely, They were dried up inside. And you have that child. What do you think your heart is most drawn to? What are you going to worship? What are you going to find, as we talked about last week, that is glorious? You see, what Abraham loved and lived for, what Abraham would die for, was his son, Isaac. So why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? You see, it wasn't about the son. It was about Abraham. Because at the end of the story, if you go back in Genesis, it says, Now I know you love me. Why? Because you've offered up your son, your only son for me. Abraham did not sacrifice Isaac. But see, Abraham did need to die to the things that he loved more than God. Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac physically. But in this moment, what Abraham had to do was to die to self, and what does Jesus say? And come alive to God. Church, do you want to find life? You got to lose it by finding Jesus Christ, by finding that Christ is now my life. See, the story of Abraham is a story of looking at what it means to love God. It's an honest examination. I'll tell you, I don't like to do it very often because it means examining my own life and asking myself what in my life is so important that it's directing my behavior more than God. What in my life is so important? What is the, non, the thing I will not sacrifice that's influencing my life, my behavior, my attitudes? And it's not God. See, what God does in life through trials, as we've talked about, is He allows trials to come in so that he can show us the things that we're worshiping, the things that we love, will never love us back. But there is one who took his son up a mountain for us and was sacrificed on our behalf so that we might know the love of God. And see, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what enables us to love God? There's only one thing. You cannot generate love for God on your own. John says we love because he first loved us and gave His life as a sacrifice for sin. Meaning, I need to take the things in my life right now. I need to take the things that are determining my behavior, my attitudes, and my actions. And I need to lead those things like Isaac up the mountain to the cross. And I need to see God descending in the person of Jesus Christ and pouring out His life for me. Being a servant Though I was dead in my transgressions and sins, and I was broken, and I was pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, and I was the one that cursed God, and I was the one who was an enemy of God, and yet God in His grace descended and became a man, and not just any man, not a king on a throne, but a servant king that ascended a cross. And when I see what God has done for me through Jesus Christ, what will happen is the heart will begin to break in humility, And I'll examine my life and say, God, these things are way too important. Lord, I want to die to self and live for God. What's the evidence of that? We're going to serve each other. And we're going to serve this community in a way that evidences the love that God has given us. Church, are we ready to do that? I know already you've begun to do that in many ways. This is a church that cares for, that loves and sacrifices. But are we willing to share that love that God has given us with those that do not know Him, that do not agree with us, and do not love what we love? Because that was us. That was us to God before we came to know Him. And what changed us was not the right laws. What changed us was the right love. And the love God's given to us, He wants to work through us. But are we willing to admit to Him, Father, there's things that are way too important? And today, would we just in prayer sacrifice those things to Him? Let me pray for you. Father, I confess, in this life, there are so many things that shine and glitter. There's so many things that I think I need for life. There's so many things that I even call my life. And yet you've told me that my life, Jason, your life was crucified with Christ. That life no longer lives, but life, the life that lives within me is the life of Christ. And if that life is within me, then the life we live today, Father, is by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, as a a community devoted to you and devoted to each other, Lord, we thank you for the love that you've offered us through your Son. Lord, now allow that love that you've given us to work through us. Help us to set aside the time the finances, the effort, Lord, to have a greater passion for this community and a greater vision for the church that goes beyond my needs but extends to the needs of others. That as Jesus had this attitude of setting the needs of others ahead of his own, Father, help us in grace and mercy with truth to sacrifice what we want and not to use God, but to love God so that we, through God, could love others. Father, guide us in that reality in Jesus' name. Amen.